Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Heavenly Father, in a garden we fell, and yet in a garden he, your son, prayed, not my will but yours be done. Our sins he became so that we could come home again to you. And so, Father, we do pray as we read again in Luke's Gospel of the ministry of this one who came for us to serve us by dying for us that we would again marvel at him and marvel at his service towards us and trust him completely. Amen. Please take a seat. And uh, please turn back in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We're continuing this series in the early chapters of Luke's Gospel. It's page 1031 of the Church Bibles, Luke 4. We're looking at verses 14 onwards. Home, uh, said the poet uh, Robert Frost, home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. Going home is one of the most profound and moving and significant experiences any human can undertake. Home is safety. Home is acceptance. It's a place of freedom. Home is a place where I wear no mask. I put on no performance. Home is where I am an insider, where I'm expected, where I belong. And when you're away from home, perhaps for some time, the thought that the time has come to return home again, well, there's nothing quite like it. As we continue our series in Luke's Gospel in these early chapters, looking at the ministry of Jesus Christ together, today we will hear from Jesus, our King, our Saviour, the one who made us and loves us. We will hear the invitation, you can come home. Now that's the offer before us in these wonderful verses, these famous verses as Jesus declares the whole purpose of his ministry here on earth. In uh, Luke 4 verse 14 we pick up the scene in Nazareth, uh, Jesus' own hometown. It's a, a backwater town, maybe at this point in history comprising of perhaps no more than 200 odd people. Tiny little town. And yet, once again, we see, as we saw two weeks ago when we began this series, uh, he is not there by accident. The Spirit has led him to this place. Father, Son and Holy Spirit are in on this work together and they want him to be right there in this little town. And as uh, we see him arrive in the town, in verses 14 and 15, we see that news of what Jesus has already begun to do in his ministry has raced ahead of him. Now, people have heard of the amazing things he's been doing. They've heard of his teaching and his praise is spreading throughout the land. And so here he is, uh, Nazareth, his childhood home, a local boy done good, now this popular regional speaker. And here he is, it's the Sabbath, he's in the synagogue. What will the local boy say? Well, let's look together. And as we look at these early verses of uh, Luke's Gospel, what what I want us to see, uh, just as we start, is just how very deliberate Luke is in giving us this account. The details in these verses are vivid. Everything is moving very slowly and very deliberately. It's Luke's way of saying, don't miss this. This is, if you like, the high-definition account of Jesus' ministry. It's the bit in the movie, uh, if, you, if you sort of watch movies, where everything gets still all of a sudden. The, the background music stops. The camera zooms in on the details. Don't miss this, says Luke. And so we come to the moment. 
everybody in eager anticipation, everybody desperate to hear what this local boy, uh, now famous, will say. And so verse 17, Jesus reaches out. Again, the details are there. He takes the scroll handed to him and as the camera zooms in on the scroll, we see it is Isaiah. Now at that point, the synagogue would have stirred, stirred in expectation of this word of God from the prophet Isaiah because the word from Isaiah was precious to these people. This would be a well-thumbed scroll. Uh, This is a scroll that they knew well because it spoke of uh, one of the most devastating moments in their history. It spoke of the national calamity that had come upon them around 590 BC when this nation of Judah, once strong, once confident in God's blessings, once feeling invincible, proudly God's people, sure that he would continue to bless them, suffered a devastating conquest at the hands of the Babylonians. The Babylonians raced through Judah, destroyed Israel and then dragged them off into exile. Well, they knew these words well. And it was a defeat that uh, the prophet Isaiah interpreted theologically. This uh, defeat wasn't just uh, about the twists and turns of ancient Near East power politics. This happened because of God's judgment on his own people, because of their sin. Because uh, in the midst of their confidence, in the midst of their pride at being God's people, they had forgotten their God and had unfaithfully gone in search of other idols, other means of protection than their God. And so this defeat, this judgment indeed left them, as we see in these verses, poor and suffering and enslaved and in exile. You see, uh, for the Israelites to be in exile uh, is not just to be homeless, they were that, they had been dragged from their home. Rather, it is worse than that. It's knowing that you have a home, but you can't go there. There's no way back. The way back has been blocked. And the desperation for them was only heightened by the fact that they knew they were in this situation, not because of some cruel twist of fate, but because of their own sin. And so those who are listening to the words in Luke 4 as Isaiah's scroll has opened up know this full well. But as we listen this morning to these words from Isaiah, it's important to see that these words are precious to us as well. For what the scriptures do again and again is they appropriate the experience of Israel in exile with our experience in this world. What the exile is for Israel, the fall from the Garden of Eden for all of us is the same thing. Uh, We, like them, have turned away from the God who made us and loves us. Uh, We, like them, were estranged from him, far from home with our God, with no way back. Uh, The signs are everywhere in our world, signs of exile, signs that things are not okay, Uh, signs that are symptoms of our spiritual disease, our estrangement from our God. Now, we may at times feel at home here, but... Again and again, there are signs, there are experiences in our own life that tell us that this is not home. Frustrations or griefs or disappointments or false hopes or pain. We are, as Jesus says in John chapter 8, we are like strangers in a rich man's house. We are not at home. But God's word in Isaiah doesn't just speak of our exile, it speaks also of a wonderful promise, a favour, a promise of a way back. That's why these words were so precious as they were opened up again in that synagogue. Isaiah speaks of uh, the anointed servant of the Lord who would come to serve us, serve us by suffering, suffering so that we could be forgiven, suffering so that we could be free to go home again to our God. 
Now, some 70 years after the exile to Babylon, they were allowed to return home to Judah. Uh, but even then, as the centuries went on and on, the conditions of exile really remained. They remained far from their God and their land remained in the power of other nations. And by the time we get to Luke 4 here, it is the Roman Empire who holds sway over this land. And so the word of a promise, this word of a return home, well, they're still waiting for it. They're waiting for what Isaiah calls the consolation of the Lord, the fulfilment of this promise. Now, there's a wonderful moment earlier in Luke's Gospel where the old, an old man, Simeon, a, a faithful Jew, is described as one waiting on the consolation of the Lord, waiting for this moment when he would fulfil his promise to open the way back home. And so this moment, as Jesus takes the scroll, is weighted with expectation. He unrolls the scroll to near the end, Isaiah 61, he's quoting for us here. And he begins to read, verse 18, these wonderful words that they would know very well. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now, what a promise. It's a promise Isaiah proclaimed to the exiles of Israel. It's a promise Isaiah knew God would share with exiles from every nation. The anointed servant comes with good news for those in desperate need of a homecoming. Yes, come home. Now, what a message. It's a message of grace. It's a message for the least likely, the least meritorious of candidates, the people who are that and they know it. You see here the use of poor, good news for the poor. It's very deliberate economic language. Now, these are people with no collateral to offer when it comes to getting home, nothing to offer. But this is grace. Jesus brings good news to the poor. And the economic language, I suspect, for people like us should be a constant warning. Now, we are the wealthy, the rich. We are those whom Luke will refer to often in his Gospel as that. We are the ones who have collateral in this world. We are the ones who can so often feel at home because of that. Uh, our merit, be it our cash or our brains or our prestige or our power or our personality, so much that we have that merits our place in this world, we can think we've arrived. Uh, but Jesus will say in Luke 6, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your consolation in full. People who are that way have no need of another home for they have already arrived in this one. So hard, uh, Luke's, uh, Luke 18 will say, for such a person to come home is, is harder for them than a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's hard for such a person to throw themselves on the mercy of Jesus for they are self-sufficient, cashed up. But Jesus here brings good news to those who know they are helpless and don't have anything to offer. And so as we hear these words, we must realise that only if we number ourselves with them is Jesus' ministry good news to us. We must be those who are in the wonderful words of the hymn Rock of Ages are able to declare with honesty nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling naked come to thee for dress helpless look to thee for grace foul I to the fountain fly wash me saviour or I die. This is a message of grace. Secondly it's a message for all. 
It's a message for outsiders who know they have no way in. That's what's wonderful about Jesus' words here. As he quotes Isaiah, this is a message for all comers. Now, earlier in Luke's Gospel in chapter 2, when Jesus is born, we are told that it is good news of great joy for all people. Now, I reckon we know that. We know that the Gospel is for all types, all comers, but we sort of gloss over that word all that's so radical. And so what Luke 4, 18 to 19 does is it spells it out starkly. You want to know the all that God is talking about, the ones he wants to shower his favour on? It's the poor. Uh, It's designed to release captives. It's designed to bring sight back to the blind, to liberate the the imprisoned. Here is the all Jesus is speaking about and I suspect it's far more exhaustive than perhaps the all of our sphere of contacts. God in Jesus Christ's ministry is going for all, not some. Jesus' offer of homecoming to those who are and know they are on the outside. Here at last is a door wide open to them where all other doors in this world are shut. That's the way our God operates in a world like ours. He goes for the all that we ignore. I mean, take for example uh, the Anglican church, the average Anglican. Who is God going for when it comes to filling his, uh, the Anglican churches? Now, what's the average Anglican? Who is the all that our God goes for? Is it a, an Englishman from Tunbridge Wells? No. Uh, she is black female, less than 30 years old, has three kids, lives on $2 a day and is related to someone dying of AIDS. That's the all that our God goes for. Our challenge as people who are so often on the inside, so often with privilege and proximity, is to number ourselves with them and not think of ourselves as any different to them. Well, that is where we are in relation to God. That is where we are when it comes to the Gospel. We are the ones, Ephesians says, are far off without God and without hope in the world. It's a message of grace, it's a message for all and my favourite, it's a message of jubilee. That's what Jesus says he has come to announce, the year of the Lord's favour. It's picking up an Old Testament idea, the Old Testament idea of the jubilee year. It was a wonderful concept. In the Old Testament, the year of jubilee was announced every 50 years. And it was announced because when Israel came together as a nation, they, they grouped together in clusters of families, they worked the land And if they had a bad year, they they might take out a loan to to continue to be able to work the land and to provide for themselves. But if they weren't able to repay the loan and things got worse, they might have to get to a situation where they would send one of their family to go work for the person who'd lent them the money. And if things continued to get worse, they might even have to sell part or even all of their land just to stay afloat. It was this cycle of debt. It went further and further, spiralling down. But once in a lifetime... Every 50 years, the ram's horn was blasted. The year of Jubilee was declared, a year when all debts were cancelled. People were returned to their families if they'd been sold into slavery and land was given back. A wonderful sort of unravelling of this downward spiral of debt. Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine that moment uh, as a family or clusters of families that got themselves more and more entrapped, desperate, and when that trumpet sounded to announce the year of Jubilee, can you imagine their rejoicing? Can you imagine the rejoicing of those who knew they were poor and knew they had no way back? Here at last is my Jubilee. And so Jesus declares, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the Jubilee year of the Lord. 
And then there's this, this remarkable moment in Luke's Gospel, verse 21 of chapter 4. The camera, if you like, slows down even more, zooms in on Jesus. Everybody is waiting. What will he say in response to these words, this promise we know so well, this promise that's been recited for seven centuries in the synagogues? Verse 21, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Seven centuries are waiting. Today it is fulfilled. Now, today is a hugely significant word in Luke's Gospel. Uh, earlier in the Gospel, it is the angels who declare to the shepherds, Today a Saviour has been born to you. Uh, the scoundrel, the tax collector, Zacchaeus, uh, when he meets Jesus, Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to your house. And in the very last moments of his life, the thief on the cross next to Jesus, who says, Please remember me when you, when you go back to your father. He hears these words, Today you will be with me in paradise. Today is the day of the Lord's favour. Now, how does that day come about? Well, Simeon knew, the one waiting on the consolation of the Lord, when he saw the baby Jesus, he knew the day had come. Jesus, uh, the one his mother Mary named Jesus for, it means he saves, he rescues, he calls back, announces forgiveness of sins, opening the way back home, announcing that he will give his life to pay back our debt, that it will be by his wounds that we are made whole again. And it's a wonderful promise, a promise that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And the question before us this morning is, how do you respond uh, to an offer, a promise like that? Grace for all, the year of the Lord's favour, a promise of a way home. Well, as we consider our own response, let's look at the response that those in the synagogue made that day. You see there, verse 22, they're amazed. Gracious words. They're praising him. They're thinking, this is wonderful. Uh, Perhaps they're thinking it's wonderful. There's a one-sentence sermon. How good is that? Well, there's more to it than that, isn't there? This is remarkable. These words, no words like this have ever been heard in our world before. Words of complete grace. And when our world hears words like that, it does fall silent. But that's the problem. These words are so unusual in our world, words of complete favour, undeserved favour, that the more that those gracious words sort of hang in the air in the synagogue, the more the questions start to come. Verse 22, but isn't this just Joseph's son? This can't be true. And Jesus, in verse 23, senses their unbelief and with this uh, strange proverb, basically he's saying, what you want me to do is you want me to prove that I'm trustworthy. You want me to prove that when I say this promise is fulfilled, then I'm telling the truth. And so what he does in the following verses is he challenges their unbelief. Uh, firstly, uh, in, he challenges the evidence. He says in verse 23, you want me to do what has been done in Capernaum. There's already evidence there. You've heard what I've been doing. You want more evidence. But here he is, he's saying the evidence is there, you're just not looking at it. Now secondly, in verse 24, he challenges their their unbelief as irrational. You know, often that's the thing, isn't it, with people who are exploring Jesus. Uh, We can think that we come as rational, careful people who weigh the evidence and then dismiss him. But here Jesus is challenging that. He says, no, you are more biased than you think especially these people in Nazareth, there's no way in their world view that this promise would be fulfilled in their town by one of them, 
just won't happen. But here's the biggest challenge, the third challenge, which is really the rest of our passage. He challenges their unbelief because he he knows that what it means is this. They don't think they need his promise. They're not desperate for it. They can't see how desperate they are. And so what Jesus will do in the following verses, he's going to cite two examples of two people who are desperate for favour. He cites the widow of Zarephath and he cites uh, Naaman, the Syrian. There's lots in these two examples, lots that we could explore together. There's the whole challenge of who he cites. Here he is amongst God's people, the Jewish people, and he cites two Gentiles, two outsiders. And Jesus has come to fulfil this promise, not just for Jews, but for the nations. But the heart of the issue here is their unbelief. And so he cites two people who do believe the promise of God's servant. Two people who know how desperate they are. Let's have a look at them briefly together. The first of them is uh, the widow of Zarephath. Uh, Perhaps one of my favourite characters in all the Bible. Uh, You can find find her in uh, 1 Kings 17. It's page 358 if you want to flick there. And you'll see why Jesus cites this woman. Here is this crowd not sure whether they can trust Jesus' word, trust this promise that favour is being fulfilled. And so he cites the widow. In 1 Kings 17 and starting at verse 10 we hear her story is this. And so Elijah went to Zarephath and when he came down to the town gate a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked her, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it he called and bring me please a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and to make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and then die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me and what you have uh, from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will never run dry. It's a remarkable challenge, isn't it? Here she is, literally right at the end of her resources, one meal away from death. That's her plan, that's her only plan. She and her son will make this meal, eat the meal and then die. Desperate. God says to the widow through his servant, I want you to bet the lot on me. Rather than do that, I want you to provide this meal for the servant. I want you to trust me completely. Bet the lot on me. Give me everything you have and I will give you everything you need. That's God's promise to her. But why does she trust him? Why trust God's servant? She's not met Elijah before. He is saying, I'm speaking the word of God to you. What evidence is there? I mean, she could have demanded a miracle first. She could have said, let's do this the other way around. Uh, You fill my jars with flour and oil and then I'll make your bread. But Elijah says, no, it's the other way around. Trust my word. Give me everything you have and God will give you everything you need. And she does. Have a look at 1 Kings 17 verse 15. She did as Elijah told her. So that there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord. God has done exactly what he promised. So why does she trust him? She trusts him because she's desperate. 
She trusts him because she's the sort of person Jesus says he has come for, those who are poor and utterly desperate and have no choice but to trust. Elijah says to her, don't be afraid. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to you. And she believed his word. Her poverty made it easy for her to believe, to see the reality of her situation before this God. I wonder what would happen if she'd had a few jars left. If this, as this famine continued, she thought, I think I can maybe just scrape through. No, but she knew her need. God promised her need and she trusted him. And so Jesus claimed here, I am the anointed servant of the Lord, announcing the year of the Lord's favour for those with no claim, no access, no way back. And he says, today this promise is fulfilled. Come and see if I am not everything I have promised to be. In the end, only if you are desperate, only if you have no choice is his promise here good news for you. But just before we close, let's be honest. Uh, we're not all like that, are we? Not like this woman, uh, not so clear of our desperate state. We're more stubborn. We feel a lot less desperate when it comes to God. I mean, did Jesus really think that he would walk into this small town filled with, uh, no doubt, his family, friends, neighbours, and that they were going to admit to him, Joseph's son, that they were desperate and call upon him as their only hope, their only way back? What a humiliating and offensive idea. That's not who I am. And so what Jesus does wonderfully for us is he cites another example, Naaman, in verse 27. Now we meet Naaman in 2 Kings 5, it's page 373 if you wanted to look, at, look it up. He's the exact opposite of the widow. He is, everything about him is different. He is described as a great man, huge achievements, showered with favour. He's an insider. Naaman is a champion of the simple economy of our world. Uh, you work hard, you excel, you achieve, you'll be successful, you'll be favoured. I mean, that's what we tell our kids, isn't it? Naaman is a man like us. He's made it. We're success stories, aren't we? We're not really like the widow. We're not that desperate. We're, well, S10, isn't that just code for I've made it? Hallam, a constituency uh, with more degrees per capita than any in the UK. Christchurch forward, uh, the best place to fall ill on a Sunday morning. You will be surrounded by specialists of all varieties within moments. A church uh, full of successful people. Now you may not feel that, you may feel small, surrounded by giants here, but only the most sustained false humility would view any of us here as unsuccessful by worldly standards. Now we are people surrounded by our self-made success, our self-sufficient success. It's hard to feel desperate. Why would I need Jesus? I might believe him. I might accept him, I might trust his word, but need him? Me? Desperately need him? But Jesus has not just come for those who know they are desperate, he's also come for people like us who are deluded enough to think we aren't. Exhibit A, Naaman. In 2 Kings 5.1 he is described as a mighty commander, great in the king's eyes. He was basically the prime minister, victorious and valiant in battle, but he had leprosy. It's a wonderful verse, 2 Kings 5.1. The verse piles achievement upon achievement, success upon success and then suddenly adds that despite all that, Naaman was a dead man walking. Leprosy had the same resonance in its time as cancer does in ours. Naaman had everything. He had wealth, power, skill, acclaim but underneath he was falling apart. 
desperate. And so he hears this wonderful news. He hears that help might come from the servant of God in Israel. But rather than go in desperation, he goes uh, expecting healing, expecting this. He goes with the king's letter of uh, recommendation, basically demanding, this is a great one, you must heal him. He's thinking that he can use his own resources, his own success to deal with the problem. Again, it's like us, isn't it? We always think that within ourselves that we have the resources to solve our problems. Uh, It's like the uh, song that uh, one of my daughters was taught recently for a choir she was a part of, I can do anything if I just believe in me. That's us. I have the resources. I can fix this. But that's what got us into the mess in the first place. Truth is, where it matters, where it really matters, we are utterly powerless. Uh, Romans 5 says we are utterly powerless when it comes to dealing with our exile from God utterly powerless to deal with the consequences of that, our own death and his coming judgment. Naaman didn't get this yet. That there is some help, some resources that only God can give. And so he doesn't go to God's servant uh, as he'd been asked to. He goes uh, and he amasses this huge payout, this huge bribe that will buy his healing. And he takes it not to the servant but to the power in Israel, to the king. Uh, But the king's response in Israel is wonderful. He says, am I God? Can I uh, end life and bring it back again? You're asking the wrong person. And Naaman was after a tame God, uh, the sort of God where you get what you deserve and he was pretty confident if that was the measure, he'd be all right. A God he could put into debt by his efforts. I've done enough, God. But this is a God of favour, not that you work for, but merciful favour given to the poor, the desperate. Only if you know how desperate you are is this offer of favour in Luke 4 good news to you. And do you hear the offer? Do you accept it? No, not do you believe Jesus or accept Jesus or uh, trust Jesus. Ultimately, do you need Jesus? One of the criticisms of Christianity and churches is that they are filled with needy people. Luke 4 says, you betcha. Are you prepared to line up with desperados? It's humiliating for people like us to say, I have nothing in my hand to offer. I have no way back into a favourable position before God. I have no way out of debt. And yet, Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. What a year. Still open. That's how gracious God is. This is our good news too. Each and every one of us forfeited our plot in heaven. Year after year mounting up debts before our God that we can't possibly pay back, not even on our best days with our best resources. But only once, but for all, God blew the trumpet of Jubilee and his son declared it. Debts cancelled, sins pardoned, come home. Now Luke's Gospel, as we read on, will be full of stories of those who claim their share in Jubilee, not because they have anything to offer, but because it is offered to them. It's a year that remains open. But only if you are desperate, only if you know you have no choice, is this invitation good news to you. And so as I close, uh, let me say this. Today, while it is still today, If you have never come home, if you've never accepted this invitation, it is for you. Come home. Come home and receive the forgiveness you desperately need. 
debts wiped clean, come home and receive the freedom that comes from that forgiveness, freedom from even the things that we are powerless before, like our death, like his judgment. Come home and receive this forgiveness and freedom and welcome from the God who was your judge and is now your father. And if you are, as most of us here will be, already home with the Lord because of Jesus, then let me say to you, brothers and sisters, your Father in heaven has swept you up in the most remarkable year, the Jubilee year. Enjoy it. When you come together on a Sunday, as we do now, as we prepare to receive communion, let's receive that as desperate sinners, as those utterly desperate for his favour time and time again. We are a community of desperate homecomers. And I leave you this challenge. I'm just going to say it now. I'd love to speak on it more, but this is for another time. But, and, and I intend to write more about it in the, uh, the blog on the website. And if you've got no idea what the word blog or website means, uh, please do come and talk to me afterwards. Here's the challenge I want to lay before you. Here's something to talk about perhaps over lunch. What will it mean for you and for us together to live as recipients of God's favour? What would this church family look like if that's who we were? We were recipients together of the favour of God. And flowing from that, what would it mean to live as those who offer that favour to others? Uh, What would our church look like? What would we be interested in? What would we be doing? Where would our direction of travel be if we were a community who offered favour to others? What would we look like if we were those who enjoy God's favour and offer God's favour? Let me pray for us. In a moment, Gareth will lead us in prayer. But first in response to what we've heard, please... Uh, Take a moment to consider your uh, desperate state before your God. Uh, Consider his incredible favour and rejoice in it. Thank you, Lord, that you...